Now for tonight's very special program. I'd like to introduce author Julia Mallory, a favorite local poet of mine. She will then introduce our keynote speaker to Yari Jones. Julia is an accomplished writer and poet. Her numerous books include Black Mermaids, Karima and the Black Mermaids, and Breathe. She holds degrees from Elizabethtown College and Eastern University. You can hear Julia share her own work this Saturday at 10 a.m. as part of our Kids Festival, where she'll be reading from her brand new children's book, Breathe. Please join me in giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Julia Mallory. Thank you, Catherine, for that beautiful introduction. Um, I'm so honored to be here tonight, um, to be part of the Harrisburg Book Festival, but more importantly, obviously, to introduce you to Tiyuri Jones. Tiyuri is the author of the novels Weave in Atlanta, The Untelling, Silver Sparrow, and her latest, which is an Oprah's book club selection, American Marriage. Her writing has appeared in The ha Tin House, The Believer, The New York Times, and Callaloo. A member of the Fellowship of Southern Writers, she has also been a recipient of the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, Lifetime Achievement Award, and Fine Arts from the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. Among the many honors and awards that an American marriage has received are, as I mentioned, the Oprah's 2018 Book Club Selection, President Barack Obama's Summer Reading Recommendation. Yeah, we... <laughs> New York Times bestseller and National Book Award nominee. I just read an article where Thierry talked about her top three books that changed her life. It is no doubt in my mind that in generations to come, an American marriage will be counted as the next generation's top three books. Without further ado, please join me in graciously welcoming Thierry Jones to Harrisburg. Thank you so much for um, coming out on this rainy day. Thank you for that gracious introduction, and thank you um, for the invitation to kick off the festival. It is always a pleasure to come and see so many people who are interested in, in books. You know, people, like if you're a writer, people are always telling you that, you know, books are over, the novel is dead. <laughs> they tell you that, you know, a Kindle is gonna come and drown you in the bathtub. I feel like if you're black, they tell you a racist Kindle is going to come and drown you in the bathtub. So I'm happy that we have all survived our baths, and we are here to talk about books. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about my new novel, An American Marriage, and then I'll read from it. But I want to tell you a little bit about how it came to be. I decided that for my fourth novel that I wanted to go a different way. My first novels all kind of were rooted in my own autobiography in some way. And I enjoyed that kind of, you know, kind of getting my, my head right, getting my life right, and writing about stories that I felt would resonate with people who had stories similar to my own. But when it came time for me to write my fourth novel, I had a kind of strange experience with publishing my third novel, which maybe I'll talk about in the Q&A, but I felt like I was given my career and my chance, given a chance back. And so with my fourth novel, I realized I felt like I had been given 
my career back for a reason and that maybe this was time for me to use my writing to think about an issue bigger than myself. And so I wanted to write something about the issue of mass incarceration. So I went, I wrote an application to Harvard to do some research and I was accepted and I went to do all this research on the topic and I discovered statistics and facts that just, they made me, they filled me with rage, I was outraged, I was despairing. Um, for example, like I found out that one in 28 children in America have a child, have a parent that's in prison. One in 28, which means that basically every kindergarten class has a kid, at least one child has a parent in prison. I found out that two million Americans are incarcerated at any given time and another four million are on parole or probation. In Washington DC, it's, I think it's one in four black men will either have been in prison or jail. So I discovered these things, but while, like I said, it made me outraged and upset, it didn't make me inspired to write, to tell a story, because a problem is not a story. A situation is not a story, a statistic is not a story. And I was always told as a writer, you should write about people and their problems, not problems and their people. So imagine this, the time is ticking on my time at Harvard, I'm supposed to give a presentation of my work, and I don't have anything to show for all my good intentions, for all my library hours. So I went home to Atlanta, where I'm from, to talk to my mother about it, which is something I do when I'm upset. And I also, I also went to the mall, which is something I do <laughs> when I'm upset. And while I was in the mall, I was in the food court, having a little snack, something else I do when I'm upset. And I saw a young couple. The woman was beautifully dressed. That's why I noticed her. She was wearing a beautiful coat, beautiful shoes. And she was, she didn't look like the kind of woman to be arguing with her man in the food court, but <laughs> there she was. And I, I was not judging because I am aware that this can happen to anyone. And the man she was with was not so well dressed as she was. So they didn't look, you know, they didn't look quite as the old people say, evenly yoked. And I could tell though that they were in love and they were in trouble. And I heard her say clear as a bell. She said, Roy, you know you wouldn't have waited on me for seven years. And I am a nosy person, so I was looking and I thought, you know, I don't know him, I don't know her, but you know you're right, girl. He was not gonna wait for you for seven years. You know, that, that coat wasn't gonna make the difference. But then he looked at her and said, I don't know what you're talking about. This wouldn't have happened to you in the first place. And again, I thought that he was right. And for me, I feel that I have a novel when I have a story where both people, where they, the characters disagree and they're both right. And so I decided to write a novel about a young couple separated by the husband's incarceration. The first time I wrote it, I wrote it all from her point of view, but it didn't seem complete. And then I also wrote his point of view and I wasn't sure which of their stories should be the story. But then I heard the poet Claudia Rankin read and one of the lines she read struck me and I chose it for the epigraph of this book. And what she said was, what happens to you doesn't belong to you. It only half concerns you. It's not yours, not yours only. And that's when I decided that I would write the novel from his point of view her point of view, I would include the letters when he's in prison, and also I would include another voice that I don't think I'll tell you about because it might be a spoiler. <laughs> but 
I will, um, I'll just read a little from her point of view and I'll read from their letters and then I'll take some questions. This is her. If this doesn't go the way we want it to, Roy said the day before his trial, I don't want you to wait for me. Keep making your dolls, keep doing all the things that you need to do. This is gonna work out, I promised him. You didn't do it. I'm looking at so much time, he said. I can't ask you to throw your life away from me. His words and his eyes were speaking two different languages, like someone saying no while nodding his head yes. No one is gonna throw anything away, I said. I had faith in those days. I believed in things. I have to put on my glasses. <laughs> oh yeah, this book is much, there it is, okay. The next day, we took our seats in the courtroom, costumed to seem as innocent as possible. My parents were there, and Roy's too. Olive was dressed for church, and Big Roy sat beside her looking poor but honest. My father had groomed himself, and he for once appeared to be equally yoked to my elegant mother. Watching Roy, I could see that he was an obvious match for us. It wasn't just a cut of his coat or the break of the hem against the fine leather of his shoes. It was his face, shaven clean, and his eyes, innocent and afraid, unaccustomed to being at the mercy of the state. The time in the, country, in the county jail shrank him. The boyish chub of his cheek was gone, revealing a squared off jaw that I didn't even know he had. Strangely enough, the leanness made him look more powerful than wasted. The only thing that gave him away as a man on trial rather than a man on his way to work were his poor fingers. He chewed his nails down to the soft meat and started in on his cuticles. Sweet Roy, the only thing that my good man ever hurt was his own hands. What I know now is this. They didn't believe me. Twelve people and not one of them took me at my word. There in the front of the room, I explained that Roy couldn't have raped the woman in room 206 because we had been together. I told them about the magic fingers that wouldn't work, about the movie that played on the snowy television. The prosecutor asked me what we had been fighting about. Rattled, I looked to Roy and to both our mothers. Banks objected, so I didn't have to answer, but the pause made it appear that I was concealing something rotten at the pit of our very young marriage. Even before I stepped down from the witness stand, I knew that I had failed him. Maybe I wasn't appealing enough, not dramatic enough, too, not from around here. Who knows? Uncle Banks coaching me had said, now is not the time to be articulate. Now is the time to give it up. No filter, all heart. No matter what you're asked, what you want the jury to see is why you married him. I tried, but I didn't know how to be anything other than well-spoken in front of strangers. I wish I could have brought a selection of my artwork, the Man Moving series, all images of Roy. I would say, this is who he is to me. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he gentle? But all I had were words which are light and flimsy as air. As I took my seat, not even the black lady juror would look at me. It turns out that I watched too much television. I was expecting a scientist to come and testify about DNA. I was waiting for a pair of handsome detectives to burst into the courtroom at the last minute, whispering something urgent to the prosecutor. Everyone would see that this was a big mistake, a major misunderstanding. We would all be shaken but appeased. I fully believed that I would leave the courtroom with my husband beside me. 
secure in our home, we would tell people how no black man is really safe in America. 12 years is what they gave him. We would be 43 years old when he was released. Roy understood that 12 years was an eternity because he sobbed right there at the defendant's table. His knees gave way and he fell into his chair. The judge paused and demanded that Roy bear this news on his feet. He stood again and cried, not like a baby, but in a way that only a grown man can cry, from the bottom of his feet up through his torso and finally through his lips. When a man wails like that, you know is all the tears he was never allowed to shed, from little league disappointment to teenage heartbreak, all the way up to whatever injured his spirit just last year. As Roy howled, my fingers kept wearing a rough patch of skin beneath my chin, a souvenir of scar tissue. When they did what I remember as kicking in the door, what everyone else remembers as opening it with the key, after that door was open, however it was open, we were both pulled from the bed. They dragged Roy into the parking lot, and I followed, lunging for him, wearing nothing but a white slip. Someone pushed me to the ground, and my chin hit the pavement. My slip rode up, showing everything to everyone, and my tooth sank into my bottom lip. Roy was on the asphalt beside me, barely beyond my grasp, speaking words that didn't reach my ears. I don't know how long we lay there, parallel like burial plots. Husband, wife, what God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. While Roy is in prison, they communicate um, through letters, and I thought I would read a selection of those letters to you. Dear Roy, I'm writing this letter sitting at the kitchen table. I'm alone in a way that's more than the fact that I'm the only living person within these walls. Up until now, I thought I knew what was and wasn't possible. Maybe that's what innocence is, having no way to predict the pain of the future. When something happens that eclipses the imaginable, it changes a person. It's like the difference between a raw egg and a scrambled egg. It's the same thing, but it's not the same at all. That's the best way that I can put it. I look in the mirror and I know it's me, but I can't quite recognize myself. Sometimes it's exhausting for me just to walk into the house. I try and be calm, remembering that I've lived alone before. Sleeping by myself didn't kill me then, and it will not kill me now. But this is what loss has taught me of love. Our house isn't simply empty. Our home has been emptied. Love makes a place in your life. It makes a place for itself in your bed. Invisibly, it makes a place in your body, rerouting all your blood vessels and throbbing right alongside your heart. When it's gone, nothing is whole again. Before I met you, I was not lonely, but now I'm so lonely that I talk to the walls. They say that you can't receive mail for at least a month. Still, I will write to you every night. Love, Celestial. And then he writes back, Dear Celestial, I don't think I've written a pen pal to, I don't think I've written a letter to anyone since I was in high school and assigned a French pen pal. And that whole thing lasted about 10 minutes. I know for sure that this is the first time I ever wrote a love letter, and that is what this is going to be. Celestial, I love you. I miss you. I want to come home to you. Look at me telling you the things you already know. I'm trying to write something on this paper that will make you remember me, the real me, not the man you saw standing in a broke-down country courtroom, broke-down myself. I was too ashamed to turn toward you, but now I wish I had, because now I would do anything for one more look. 
this love letter thing is uphill for me. I've never even seen one unless you count the third grade. Do you like me? Check yes, no. <laughs> a love letter is supposed to be like music or like Shakespeare, but I don't know anything about Shakespeare. But for real, I want to tell you what you mean to me, but it's like trying to count the seconds of the day on your fingers and toes. Why didn't I write you love letters all the while so I could be in practice? Then I would know what to do. That's how I feel every day here, like I don't know what to do or how to do it. I've always let you know how much I care, right? You never had to wonder. I'm not a man for words. My daddy showed me that you do for a woman. Remember that time when you damn near had a nervous breakdown because it looked like the tree in the front yard was thinking about dying? Where I'm from, we don't believe in spending money on pets, let alone trees. <laughs> but I couldn't bear to see you so upset, so I hired a tree doctor. See, in my mind, that was a love letter. The first thing I did as your husband was to sit you down, like the old folks say. You were wasting your time and talents doing temp work. You wanted to make art, so I made that happen. No strings. That was my love letter to say, I got this. But now, all I have is this paper and this raggedy ink pen. It's a ballpoint, but they take away the casing so you just have the nib and, this pla and the plastic tube of ink. And I'm looking at it, thinking, this is all I have to be a husband with? But here I am trying. Love, Roy. As his time goes on in prison, the relationship starts to fray. They've only been married 18 months when he's arrested. And she's an artist, and her career is exciting. Good things are happening to her. And he has seen in prison, they get a lot of magazine subscriptions, and he sees in a, in a magazine that she's received an award, a national award, and she's received an award for a, a doll sculpture, sculpture that she's made that looks like him. And he's hurt because in the article, he's not mentioned. And this is his letter when he feels complaining about feeling left out. Dear Celestial, a few months ago, you said you were dream adjacent, but now it looks like you've been living your real dream behind my back. The shop, that was my idea, but your fantasy involved galleries, museums, and white glove installations. Don't treat me like someone who doesn't know you. And I understand what you're saying, and I understand what you're not saying. Are you ashamed of me? You are, aren't you? You can't go to the National Portrait Museum and tell them that your husband is in prison. Well, you could, actually, but you won't. I empathize. It's a lot to get used to. Before, we were living that Huxable life, but now where are we? I know where you are, and I know where I am, but where are we? Send me a picture of the doll. Maybe I'll like it better when I can actually see what it looks like, but I must tell you, I don't care for the concept. And even if what you said in the article was true about how you want to, quote, raise consciousness about mass incarceration, let's say this wasn't bullshit. Please explain to me what art is going to do to help anyone in here. Yesterday, a dude died because no one would give him his insulin. I hate to break it to you, but no amount of art is going to bring him back. Look, you know I've always supported you. No one believes in you more than me, but don't you think you crossed a line here? And not to even tell me or mention me? I hope that prize from the National Portrait Gallery means a lot to you. That's all I'll say. You know, if you're not comfortable telling people that your husband, an innocent man, is incarcerated, instead, you can tell them what I do for a living. I've been given a promotion. 
I push a trash can around, picking up garbage with giant tongs. It's a sweet gig because this is also an agribusiness site. Before, I was picking soybeans. Now, I work inside, and although I'm not wearing a white shirt and tie, I do have a white jumpsuit. Everything is relative, Celestial. You still have your upwardly mobile husband. In here, I'm white collar. No need to be ashamed. Your husband, I think, Roy. I know, he's completely out of pocket. <laughs> so then, a few weeks later, he writes back, and he mentions advice given to him by his cellmate, an older man with whom he has a close relationship. His cellmate is named Walter, who's, and his nickname is the Ghetto Yoda. <laughs> Dear Celestial, according to Walter, I am being a jackass for not looking at things from your side of the bed. He says it's unreasonable for me to expect that you would constantly reiterate that your husband is incarcerated. He said, quote, this ain't the fugitive. You want her to go running after the one-legged man? You see why we call him the ghetto Yoda? He says that your potential for advancement in your profession will be greatly diminished by having your brand associated with incarceration, which evokes troubling stereotypes of African-American life. Except he said it like this. She is a black woman, and everybody already thinks she's got 5011 babies with 5011 daddies, and that she's got welfare checks coming in and 5011 people's names. She already got that to deal with, but she got the white folks to believe that she is some kind of genius doll maker, and she even got them thinking that this is an actual job. She is working her hustle. You think she's supposed to get up there talking about her man is in the hooskow? Soon as she say that, everybody will start looking at her and thinking about the 5011 everythings, and she might as well go on back home and work for the company. <laughs> Again, these are his exact words. My exact words should be, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to guilt trip you, but it's heavy. You don't know what it's like in here, and trust me, you don't want to know. I went to the library, and I pulled up the article and the photo one more time. You wore a smile on your face and my ring on your finger. I don't know how I didn't see it before. Love always, Roy. So now I thought we'd talk. <laughs> I am happy to take all your questions. I am a friendly, approachable person. Hi, everyone. We're going to transition into one of our favorite portions of the event, and that is the audience Q&A. We're going to go back and forth between me and Mayor Papenkus over here. So if you have a question, just raise your hand, and I'll come find you. Okay. We're going to start right here. That was beautiful, thank you. Oh, thank you. Besides your Harvard research, did you do any people-to-people -people research? You know, most, uh, I was really apprehensive about, I've always felt weird, and I think I kind of um, put that also with in Celestial in the book. I, I don't, I never quite felt comfortable with the idea of going to people who are having a life in some kind of crisis and feel like, tell me about it for my book. You know, like I feel kind of, weird about that. And I think that I had that anxiety in the whole time in writing it, which is why there's so much talk in the book about if Celestial bases her dolls on Roy, is that exploiting him or is that raising awareness? So I actually mostly relied, I, I filled in the gaps by looking at oral histories, which I feel are a nice in-between place because if someone has given an oral history to an ethnographer, they volunteered that, 
and had it out there. But oral history, I find, is more conversational and has more of the small details that you wouldn't get in, say, a book like The New Jim Crow. For example, in the oral histories, I was really struck by what I like to call the minutia of deprivation. Because one of the things that was important to me, that when you read a book, you vicariously experience what the characters experience. And prison is brutality. And I did not want, as a writer, I spent six years on this book, I didn't want to spend six years vicariously experiencing brutality. I didn't want you to spend 300 pages experiencing brutality. So when I was reading the oral histories, I was looking for the very small things that would touch your heart and give you the emotional feeling of what happened without having to go through like the blow by blow. And the most interesting thing I found was a man who spoke for several pages about when he was in prison, how more than anything he wanted to have an onion and that he went to great lengths to get this onion, which is such a mundane thing, but I thought it just really was just a small detail that showed how cut off from the world he was there. And so that's kind of how I did it. Any other questions? Yes. Um, well, first, Tiari, thank you so much for coming to Harrisburg. And I was wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about just your path to becoming a writer when you decided that you wanted to be and how you went about it? Well, I've loved to write all my life. You know, like as a kid, I like to read. I would write little books and staple them. But I didn't know that it meant that I could be a writer. I didn't know that this was a life path for me. Even when I was in high school, I wrote. I won a few contests. But no one ever said, oh, this is what you're going to do. And I really think it is because of the way that girls, young girls, teenage girls are assessed. I feel like when I was a teenager, there was only one question in life, is whether or not you were a nice girl. And so, or a nice girl or a bad girl. And so if you like to read and write, people looked at it as a character issue more than an aptitude or a skill. It was like, oh, she's a sweet girl, she reads all the time. Nobody ever got pregnant in the library, you know? <laughs> And so, but I wasn't encouraged in it specifically. And it wasn't until I um, went to college. I went to Spelman College in Atlanta. <laughs> there are my Spelman sisters there. And, you know, I met a writer and she was my teacher. Her name is a playwright. Her name is Pearl Clegg. And she took me under her wing and she modeled for me the life of a working artist. And I knew that this was the life that I wanted. And I, and I just followed it from her. But I had like some bumps in the road because when I finished college, I was not encouraged to be a writer. Everyone felt like I was signing up for a lifetime of poverty and despair. And I'm good at taking standardized tests. And so everybody wanted me to go get a PhD. With that G GRE score, I could get a PhD for free. And everyone's like, you should go get a PhD and you can write on the side, you know? And I felt like getting a PhD in English I wanted to be a writer, not talk about writers. It's like I was a bird, and they wanted me to be a bird watcher. And like, you can just fly on the weekends, you know? And so, <laughs> but when I got to be in my mid-20s, I just decided that I wanted to give a shot at my dream. And so I left the PhD program, and I bought a laptop. It was the world's first laptop. Everyone thought it was so small. It weighed 13 pounds. And everyone was like, is that the whole computer? I was like, yeah, this is the whole computer. Everyone was, it's so tiny. And so I, but making that investment in this 13, I felt like, I think of that as when I really made my start because I spent all my little money on this piece of equipment to try and be a writer. And I am a person that believes that 
when you commit to your art with your whole heart, that God, the universe, however you spend this, will meet you halfway. Because I started working on a book on this 13-pound laptop, and then I quite randomly met a woman who ran a graduate program in creative writing, and she had read the one short story I had published. And she said, come to Arizona and work with me. I'll help you. I'll be your mentor. And so I packed up my stuff, and I moved to Arizona. I can get the next one over here. How does this work? How does this work? <laughs> Hi. I, also, I wanted to know what your um, three top readings were, the books that she mentioned. I think that was when I was in, I think I, you know, I get asked these kinds of questions a lot and I have to admit I switch them up. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I think in that one I talked about the book that I loved best as a child, which was Charlotte's Web. I, you know, I love this so much. You know how, like, when I was a child and I was so nervous, I would just remember the nice things that Charlotte said to Wilbur, some pig, terrific, radiant, humble. Like when I would get ready to say my Easter speech, I'd be backstage psyching myself up. Some pig, terrific, radiant, <laughs> humble. And then I think I went on to my favorite Toni Morrison novel, which would be Song of Solomon. Um, I love the way that she talks about ordinary people and raises them to the level of myth. And then I probably, knowing me, I probably then like went all the way back in time to the Odyssey because I think that um, an American marriage is a re in my mind is a reworking of the Odyssey. You know, there's a man in trouble and he has all these trials and tribulations and he just wants to get home and find a chaste woman and a clean house. And so I felt like this was kind of reworking the Odyssey. Like Roy is, he, the Odyssey was written in 70 BC. So Roy is trying to have a 70 BC um, idea of what his marriage is going to be like. It is almost as if Odysseus were to come home and find Penelope and instead of unweaving her tapestry, she's now famous for making tapestries, and he has to deal with that. Question over here. Hi. All right, I want you to tell me about what happened in the publication of your third book. I want the story. <laughs> okay, about 10 years ago, y'all, and 10 years ago, I was told my career was done. There is a computer program known as BookScan. BookScan, they can put your name in BookScan and see how many books you sold. Before BookScan, you used to kind of act successful, and they would think you were successful. But now you can talk a good game if you want to. They put your name in the computer, and they find out if you're profitable. So I, my publisher didn't want my third book, and I didn't know what to do because that BookScan was following me around. I couldn't even get anyone to even read, a new publisher to even read the manuscript because of BookScan. This is why publishing your first book is the easiest book to publish because you don't have a book scan. You don't have a track record. You're whatever they fantasize you could be. Like you, they think you're gonna be the next whatever they want another one of. By your third book, they know you're you and they have that book scan. So I didn't know what I was gonna do. I was um, invited to a book festival in Florida and I, I found out not only could I not get a publisher for my third book, my first two books had been taken out of print because book scan said it wasn't even worth it to keep printing them. So I was embarrassed, and I, was, I didn't want to give the reading because I was afraid that I would give the reading. It would become time to sign. I wouldn't have any book for anyone to sign. And I got to the festival. The only reason I went is that I didn't want to be a no-show and represent poorly. So I then 
got to the book festival and they had four books at the bookseller. And I said, oh, where did these come from? And the man showed me the box. I saw the box, it had my father's handwriting. He had, he had, he had his books and he said, oh, I went to your uncle's house, I got his books. They were brand new, he hadn't touched them. <laughs> and daddy said, you just sign those books, Buttercup, and then you just tell them you sold out. So I said, okay. So I gave my reading, I signed my four books, and a woman came up to me and I said, oh, I'm so sorry, ma'am, I sold out. And she said, oh, that's good because I heard that you can't get a publisher. I heard your books are out of print. Oh, it's just terrible how they do young people. I heard that you're in a terrible place. And I was just dying because, you know, I thought that with this little trick me and daddy pulled that I was able to, you know, be, have some self-respect there. And she said, but I can help you. And I didn't necessarily believe her because you meet a lot of strange, not you all, you all lovely people, <laughs> but you meet a lot of strange people on the road. And so she said, well, come with me. And she took my hand. She had me in like a pretty good grip. And she put me through the crowd. And she put my hand in the hand of a publisher. And she said to the publisher, oh, help, you should help this young lady. I recognized the publisher because they had already rejected me because of book scan. So I was just trying to get away because I just knew that as soon as I left, because you know, these, they have book scan on their phone. <laughs> so I knew that as soon as I left, she was going to get on her phone and put me in and find out, you know, this book scan thing. But as I was trying to get away, the publisher lady wouldn't let me go. She said, well, what is your book about? And I told her, oh, my second book is called Silver Sparrow. It's about these two girls that have the same dad, but only one knows. And she says, well, that sounds interesting. I would like to see it. And I was just trying to get away because of the book scan. But then she said, but wait, don't leave. I said, ma'am. And she said, before you go, you have to tell me, how do you know Judy? And I said, oh, I don't know anyone named Judy. And she says, no, no, Judy, who just, Judy Bloom, who just introduced <laughs> us. And it was like my nerdy library childhood had come to rescue me in my time of need. And I turned to say thank you, and she had vanished. Yes, like a, like a fairy godmother. And, and I thought that that was because I had written Silver Sparrow as a gift to my sister. I promised my sister that I would write this book. And then I felt like I had done my part, and God met me half, halfway, and I was able to publish that book. And now my book scan, after Silver Sparrow, my book scan is fine, y'all. My book scan is, looks good. <laughs> and, and so I felt like now that I've been given my career back, then now what can I give to return what I've just been given? Okay, we're up in the balcony. Yeah. Uh, hi, Tari. I'm, I'm Victoria. So my question is ab about your book, the recent book, An American Marriage. So Celestial experiences managing family and people's expectations of her as being a wife of an incarcerated man. And one of the things that I kept thinking about when she was dealing with these expectations was that her marriage was shorter than his incarceration. So he's been incarcerated longer than she has been married. So how can people expect so much from her, in my opinion? So considering her character attributes, I believe that um, a lot of women would, even with half her attributes, would, um, would, would relate to how she may have been feeling through those years. And I'm just wondering how and what steps did you go through in order to develop Celestial's character to make her so relatable? Well, first, I appreciate you describing her as relatable because I do, like, I'm, 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 not even, I'm looking at somebody who's giving me a look. I'm not even going to turn, turn this way. Um, I'm glad you describe her as relatable because some people, they really get so angry at her. They get so mad. This lady in Baltimore, 
This woman got up, got dressed, put on some shoes, came to the book festival for the express purpose of heckling me about <laughs> Celestial. <laughs> and I w it was really terrible. But anyway, um, so I, I do think that she's real. I do think that she deals with issues in a very real way. But I think that our expectation of women in books is that they perform a kind of bottomless selflessness it's kind of the genre expectation. When you say you have a book about a woman and her husband is wrongfully incarcerated, you think this is a book about sac her sacrifice, her brave fight to free her man, right? Like that's what you expect to see. So the hardest thing with this book was that the book wasn't unfolding the way that people expected and they just felt like one of my, when I was working on it, someone said to me, I think you, like you could put a little more Black Lives Matter in this book like, like I have Black Lives Matter in my pocketbook and I'm just gonna, you know, like. <laughs> but the expectation, like, I mean, writing about someone who's wrongfully incarcerated puts you in a strange moral place as a writer because just in the term wrongful incarceration, there's a moral thing right there. It's something wrong has happened. And the expectation is that the rest of the book will revolve around that, will become like a single issue story and revolve around that wrongness. And so when it has a lot, when, it, when the story then becomes, I'll use the term intersectional, when you write then intersectionally about this where more than one problem is happening at once and people have multiple agendas in one story, it is really unsettling, I think, to read. The first time you read it, it's unsettling because it's not what you thought you were gonna get. But I had to just stay true to the questions that I was asking of that couple. When she said, Roy, you know you wouldn't have waited on me for seven years. And he says, well, this wouldn't have happened to you they are, there's two different things happening there, right? Like he feels that the question of reciprocity is irrelevant in the face of his suffering. And how then do you deal with that moral weight? And how, and then I asked the question that I asked myself in life, you know, I think all people, particularly women, struggle with how much of your life do you dedicate to your marriage and how much do you use to foster your own dreams? And in celestial situation, because her husband is wrongfully incarcerated, any ambition that she may have is so problematized. So I think all women's ambition is problematized. Like Celestial says, I hate the word career because it sounds like the word bitch is hiding between the letters. All women's ambition is problematized, but Celestial's in the face of Roy's suffering, it's, it's like she has that problem times 20. And I think her challenge is extreme, but I think it also is a problem that black women have because of there is a sense that the men are constantly in peril. They may not be wrongfully incarcerated, but there's a sense that they're under siege and therefore her ambition is gonna be more problematic. Yes. Um, I think one of the most enjoyable things, can I do that one? I could probably talk without it. <laughs> uh, one of the more enjoyable things about the book is I kept going back and forth. First it was, I was on her side, and then I would end up on Roy's side, and I thought that was very intriguing how you were able to do that. Have us probably believe one way or the other. Well, thought. I felt like they're all right. I felt like all of them are right, and that each of them is trying to figure out how to have a life in the face of this injustice. I mean, they're all trying to figure out the balance. And I like them all. Like, I, I, could, I could see all their, I cannot write characters if I don't see their point of view. Like, I can't make a character just for other characters to knock them down. So I, yeah, I felt like I too, I was on all their sides. Like, sometimes I go places, 
people have t-shirts. They have t-shirts that say like Team Andre, Team Roy, Team <laughs> Celestial. And I'm like, no teams, team everybody, right? We, we're supposed to be on team justice up in here. That's what I think. We're up in the balcony again, up here. Hi, thank you for being here. Um, I, and I wanna be respectful to no, no spoilers or anything for folks uh -oh, who haven't read it, but um, <laughs> I struggled with the ending a lot um, and the way that you, you wrapped it up and it seemed like there were a lot of different turns that it could have taken right at the end in terms of sort of, you know, maybe I guess not doing what you expected, but um, when, could you tell us a little bit about how you made the decision to end it the way that you did, to, to the extent that you <laughs> want to share? <laughs> I think I can do this, okay. trust me. Okay. I was stranded 50 pages from the end for about a year and a half. Yeah, it was bad. It was like me and this book were in a relationship. We had broken up, but we couldn't afford to move out. <laughs> it's like it was sleeping on my couch. It was keeping me from doing other things. And, but I couldn't figure it out because I couldn't figure out what, what, how to end it because I realized that I was letting Roy as a character drag me through the book. Roy is under the, Roy, this is back to the tyranny of genre expectation. Roy believes that the end of his story is about how he can recover what he has lost. That's what he thinks the question of the story is. He feels like he lost his job, his status, his woman, his mama, he's lost all these things and how can he get it back? And he thinks the moral litmus test of everyone he encounters is to what extent they help him recover what he's gotten, what he's lost. Like that's what he thinks the world is. And he had me kind of leaning the book in that way. But then I realized that Roy thinks that he's lost these material trappings. He thinks he's lost his status and he has, but I realized what he really lost was his citizenship in his own life. We are citizens of our, of our lives, of our families, of our communities, of our nation based on what we can contribute. And he had never considered what can I contribute like even when he's always trying to get her back, he never says, this is what I can offer you. He just thinks that because of what he suffered, that it's all about people healing him. And when he realizes that he can heal something for someone else, it is only then that he is able to move forward with his life in a way that I think puts him on a solid footing. But I do think that it upsets the expectation, the genre expectation. Okay, y'all, this book is a love triangle. I'll just say it's a love triangle. It's a love triangle. Okay. <laughs> The genre expectation of a story that hinges on a love triangle makes you think that the purpose of the story is who gets the girl. And Roy and his way of thinking, because he's got very traditional ideas. He thinks that is what, that is like some symbolic way of how determine whether or not he has his life back. But he has to come to realize that there are other factors. And that's how I came to the ending. But it is, it does upset one's expectations. And also, I'm not a writer, I'm not a writer that believes in punishing my characters. That's also something I don't do. I don't, I don't like to take them out and punish them or, or for what I think who did wrong or seem like as a storyteller, I am giving them their just desserts by who gets to be happy and who doesn't get to be happy. I really wanted to figure out how all these people could move forward with though damage, though with pain, how they can move forward with hope. We have time for just two more questions. You have to call my Spelman sister right here. She had her head up a hundred times. 
Okay. I just had a question. I know you mentioned the couple in the food court, and his name was Roy. I didn't know if you had ever tried to seek this couple out after. <laughs> no, ma'am. Mm -mm. That would that would be awkward. <laughs> you know. No, but you know what? I met this completely ordinary-looking couple last night in Fairfax, Virginia. Perfectly ordinary-looking people. They were like in their 50s. They were cute. They were in love. They were adorable. And they were like, we really love this book. And I was like, oh, thank you. And then, she's, and then the woman said, but I guess it, it was a special story for us. And I said, why? It turned out when they got together, her husband was in prison. You never would have thought it. And that just made me realize, too, that the thing about mass incarceration is that it happens to so many people that you would you just these regular people hanging out in the library. Yeah. That's how they got together. And I was like, in my opinion, that's romantic. Okay, last question in the second row. Hi. Thank you for the book. And I just love the story, the um, love story within the story between Big Roy and Olive, is there a real-life inspiration behind that, that somebody you know, and if so, who? No. Um, I, I did, I had so much fun with the next generation of love stories, the parents' love stories, and I loved how all the parents were kind of on their second love. They were all, and all of them, I felt like in writing so many love stories that I realized that what makes a love, uh, makes a marriage or love work it's not that there's one right way to do it. It's just that both people have to agree on what they want. It's about compatibility, not that one is right. Like Big Roy and Olive, they had like this completely dedicated love, but I like, but I don't think that either one of them would be a great match for anyone else. You know, like all they do is each other and their kid. Like they have no interest in anything beside their relationship. And that works for them, but it wouldn't work if any of either one of them had any a outside ambition. So that's why their thing works so well. And Big Roy, he's so charming, isn't he? He's so sweet. And don't you love when he's trying to learn how to cook? <laughs> and yes, and he says, I, I, I'm not going to get married again just because I'm hungry. He said, <laughs> he said, if I, yeah, he said, if, if I want to, if I get married again, it's because I want another wife, but it's not because I want to learn how to eat. And so he learned how to cook. So I enjoyed that. And also, it was a, again, you know, when you read, you experience vicariously things. And I just thought that in light of some hard things happened in this book, but that I wanted to get the full range of experience and let us also experience, experience let us also experience love when we read. Let us experience humor. I feel like sometimes when I tell people, oh, this novel, they say it's about wrongful incarceration, everyone thinks it's going to be a drag. You know, I see people like, oh, I didn't want to read that because I thought it was going to be a drag. But I like to think that it's, I like to think that it's layered. And I like to think that if you write realistically about people, you will be able to write all the things they experience, that we are greater than our suffering. We are greater than our challenges. We are as great as our love, in my opinion. Thank you. Thank you, Teori. Thank you, everyone, for coming out. We're going to transition into the book signing portion of the event. Um, we're going to have a